0: Uh, We're going to go to Ephesians chapter 1 this morning, and it's kind of a fake-out. We're kind of, sort of, maybe kind of starting our series in Ephesians, but not really. And I'll try and help unpack that for you and what I mean by that in just a minute. So go to Ephesians chapter 1. We've been talking uh, the last several weeks about how uh, it's our desire uh, to begin to walk through the book of Ephesians together. Um, we have just finished uh, a little over two years of walking through the book of Luke. Uh, we just literally, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, made our way through the book of Luke, uh, and it took about two years. Uh, and we we finished, and it was awesome. Uh, the reason we did that is because we really wanted to get a view of jesus christ and matthew mark luke and john what we call the gospels they really give us a great picture of the life and ministry of jesus in his physical body while he was here and walked on the earth the gospels really show us a picture of the life and ministry of jesus in his physical body and we've known that we've wanted to jump into the epistles and we've been looking at the church of Ephesus, the the book of Ephesians, wanting to get there. And we said, you know what? We need to uh, bridge the gap between the Gospels and between the epistles. And really the Bible does that for us in the form of the book of Acts. And so if the Gospels are a picture of the life and ministry of Jesus in his physical body, the book of Acts is really a picture for us of the life and ministry of Jesus in his spiritual body, which is the church. And so the book of Acts really gives us this snapshot of the early church, of the church when it was first formed just after Jesus ascended back into heaven. And and so it bridges the gap for us in showing us how the gospel formed this community, this family that we called the church, and how they went out on mission And more churches were planted as a result of that. One of those being uh, the church and the churches in the surrounding area of this ancient city called Ephesus. And so uh, we've walked through the first few chapters of the book of Acts. Uh, Last week we we camped out in Acts chapter 6, we we were able to see how the apostles who were the first elders in the church appointed also deacons to serve in the church, how that structure remained in the church and how it was for the good of the body of Christ that God would give these uh, faithful men and women to lead the church through the offices of elder and deacon. We talked about how that we as a church are in a, a season where uh, we are in need of more elders and of actually having deacons in the church. And so that's something that we desire, uh, that God would, would bring forth men as elders and men and women as deacons uh, to step forward and lead and serve the church in those capacities. And um, I had a phone call this week, and, and I guess... Maybe implicitly I was implying this and so I want it to be explicit this morning because I got a phone call this week and, and, and on the phone call the person said, Pastor, um, so how do you know who an elder or a deacon is? And, and so I want you to know explicitly an elder or a deacon is someone who acts like an elder or a deacon. Um, all those lists of qualifications, remember, were not only for elders and deacons, but rather they were for all the body of Christ to live these things out. But as we see people live those things out, and remember with elders, the first qualification was that they had a desire to lead in that capacity that we could begin to walk through those things with somebody. So how do the present elders of a church begin to look for other people that God would call to be elders? Well, it's people who are already acting like elders. And so what we are able to do is to come along and affirm something that God has already been at work doing in the life of someone. Same with a deacon. So let's go to Ephesians chapter 1, and uh, and, and I'll just unpack just a little bit more of, of where we're going here. As, as we've been looking at going into the book of Ephesians, I have not, and this isn't, this is very unspiritual, okay? So just, this is just Mike talking here for a minute. As I've been trying to wrap my mind around going through the book of Ephesians, I have not been able to get away from a picture of us like collectively getting on a bus and going on a road trip and, um, and using Ephesians like a road map. And I don't know if you guys have ever been on a road trip. Um, I feel like my life has been one large collective journey. I, 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 I think about my life uh, much in the way of where I have been and where I am presently going much more than I do where I presently am. Uh, that's a blessing and a curse in a lot of ways. Um, and and I, have, I have led trips into other countries, I have lived in other countries, I have, I have uh, just moved a lot in my life, and throughout my life, I've taken a lot of road trips. And what I love about road trips is that the road trip is not nearly so much about where you're going, but about the places you're going to visit along the way. Right? Like if we were going to uh, go somewhere and, and we just wanted to get there, we'd fly, right? Because it's like what I want to do is there and so I'm going to do whatever it takes to just get there so I can do what it is that I want to do. We'd fly, right? But sometimes you make a choice to drive and why in the world, so let's say this morning we wanted to go to LA, why in the world would you make that trek from here to L.A. by uh, anything but an airplane? Well, there's some cool stuff along the way. Uh, you have the Sandia Mountains in Albuquerque. You have the Grand Canyon along the way. You have the Mojave Desert. There, there's so many things that you can see on your way to L.A. that may compel you to drive rather than fly. Now, remember, none of this is spiritual right now. because it's just me trying to help you understand where I'm coming from with the book of Ephesians. You may drive because there's some places along the way that you really want to stop and hang out and see and experience, right? When we go through the book of Ephesians, the book of Ephesians is unique in such a way that Paul writes this letter. He writes it to the church of Ephesus, but scholars also believe it really was for all the surrounding churches in Asia Minor. And so it was kind of a a letter that was passed around to all these different churches. And in it, Paul just like goes from topic to topic to topic to topic. Just to give you an example, the first uh, chapter really talks about the mystery of salvation. Like what salvation really is. What does it really mean to be saved? What we, in English, we say, yeah, I'm saved. you saved? Yeah, I'm saved. What does that mean? Paul unpacks that for us and shows us the depth of, of what's happening in that. Chapter 2 talks not only how it, uh, not only what salvation is, but how it happens. That it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Uh, Chapter 3, as Paul continues, he talks about the mystery of the gospel and how it's gone out not just to one particular people, but to not only meaning the Jews, but also to all the Gentiles. He talks about reasons for needing spiritual strength from God. He talks about unity in the body and, and the and the gifts that God has given the body in chapter 4. And then all of a sudden, chapter 5, he like starts going into marriage and family. Chapter 6 talks about spiritual warfare. And so there's all these different things that are in the book of Ephesians. And so... We could just go, we want to get through the book of Ephesians and just like plow through it and go, right, guys, six chapters in the book of Ephesians, six weeks, let's get it done. Right? And just like blow through the book of Ephesians and dust our hands and go, we did the book of Ephesians. If, if we did that, I believe we would miss so, so much treasure. All right? And so the way I'm looking at this is as a road trip. And so what I want to do is I want to start the journey, and as we get to a place where Paul stops and begins to unpack something for us, I'm saying, hey, let's hit the KOA campground along the way, unpack and hang out for a while, and really explore the depths of what Paul is saying in these different places, right? And, and so... Uh, Luke was 24 chapters. It took us two years. Ephesians is six. Maybe Ephesians will take us two years. I don't know. Okay, so just so you know, I don't have like a real lined out plan on how long this is going to take. But I am planning on jumping into the text, camping out, and then systematically walking through the things that Paul is talking about so that when we talk about things like, predestination and election in chapter one. We can really walk through that together rather than just blowing by it and going, yeah, if you didn't catch that, call us later. No, like, let's camp out. Let's talk about what this really means. This is in the Bible. Let's talk about it together. When we get to chapter two and we talk about what it really means for salvation to be all of grace through faith in Christ alone and nothing else Like to add anything else to that message of the gospel is, as Paul would say in Galatians, a gospel of a different kind. Like, let's camp out there and really uh, dive deep into what that means. Does that make any sense to you guys? If it doesn't, keep coming. You'll get it. All right? If it makes sense, keep coming. That's where we're going. Uh, And so if if you think that's good. So let me give you an example of how this is going to play out. So let's go to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. I will read verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So let's stop right there. In fact, let's go back, let's rewind, and let's go to the first word. Ready? Paul. And stop. (laughs) We can't move any further until we really deal with who Paul is, right? And so if Remember I said this would be akin to us getting on a bus this morning and going on our way. The first thing that I would do if we were all going on a trip together and a bus rolled into a parking lot is there would be a guy who was driving the bus who would have to get out of the bus and then I'd be like, hey guys, this is Paul. Anyone who's bringing kids on the trip are like sizing this guy up, right? It's like... Okay, does he look like a carny or, uh, you know, what, what, what's going on? What, what kind of bus driver is this guy? How many hours have you spent on this bus already today? Like, like, we're who is this guy, right? And if we're going to take this journey together through the book of Ephesians, it might be important to understand who the dude is who's driving the bus, right? And so what I want us to do this morning is I really want us to take a look at who Paul is. Who is Paul? Well, he gives us his own uh, little description about himself here in verse 1. And what does it say? It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Now, there is a lot there. Now, number one, I want you to understand that any apostle had to be someone that Jesus appeared to in bodily form after his death and resurrection. There's no such thing as an apostle who didn't see Jesus after his death and resurrection. Now some of you know the story of Paul. You're thinking back, you're going, wait a minute, Paul didn't come around until after Jesus ascended. So let's, what's going on there? Well, we're going to look there today. Paul authored 13, 13 of the New Testament books Uh, all of them being epistles. And so let's ask the question, who is Paul? But let's look at what he said about himself. If you turn just to the next book, so flip to the right just a little bit. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul tells us a little bit about himself. He gives us what scholars call Paul's pedigree, if you will. And so if you go to Philippians chapter 3 verse 4, If you don't have a Bible, there should be a hard-backed black one nearby. You can ask someone to hand one to you if you want. Philippians chapter 3, verses... Oh, let's go uh, 4 through 6 together. So Paul says this. He says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also... And he's going to tell us why he has confidence... He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Now that's a pretty weighty uh, statement. He's saying, if anyone has, and he's speaking to, any confidence that someone could claim to have for having right standing before God. He says, if anyone could have confidence standing before God, I have more. That's That's a big statement. Well, why? Well, he shows us. He says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, which means not only did he keep the letter of the law, he went and and kept even more laws than what was required in the Old Testament. That's what the Pharisees did. He says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church... Now, remember, he's writing to people who were Jews trying to get Christians to be more like Jews. And so he's saying, hey, you want to talk about a zealous Jew? I was persecuting the church of Jesus before y'all were even around. Okay? Under the law, as to righteousness under the law, what does he say? Blameless. Again, huge statement. So we look at Paul 1, it's like that's kind of braggadocious, man. That's, you know, got a pretty high view of yourself. Now let's not forget we jumped right into midstream in this chapter. We're going to circle around back to this by the end of the day today. But I want you to jump. This, this is really in the flesh. Notice what he says. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the, what? Flesh, I have more. So this is Paul talking about the confidence that he has in the flesh. But what really does, what is Paul's actual view of himself? To get that, we've got to go to 1 Timothy chapter 1. So again, turn to the right a little bit more to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. 1 Timothy chapter 1, and we're going to go to verse 12. Paul says this, I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. Look at verse 13. Though formerly... That's such a weird word. Everyone say formerly. I just didn't want to have to say that by myself. Thank you. Solidarity there. I appreciate it. All right. Formerly... Whatever. Previously... All right, that's a better word for me. Previously, what does he say? I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Now I want you to grab that real quick. Notice Paul doesn't say, previously I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief and then I changed my mind and decided to follow Jesus. Is that what it says? No. What does it say? It says, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me, With the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So what is he saying? He's saying this wasn't something that I chose. This is something that overflowed and overtook me. Like a flash flood just knocking me over. This is what happened. The grace of the Lord overflowed with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. Remember that first sentence? In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by what? Will. By choice? Because I wanted to? Because it had great benefits? No, by the will of God. Amen? By the will of God. And here we see this being lived out in what Paul's saying about himself. Then he says this, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. In some translations, I am the chief of sinners. Now, just remember, just a couple books to the left, we have Paul saying, in the flesh, if anyone had reason to stand before God with confidence, I have more. And when he says according to righteousness by the law, blameless. Blameless. But then what does he say here? I'm the foremost of sinners. What in the world is this thing that's going on? Well, remember Romans chapter 7. Well, Paul wrestles through the reality of his life when he says, man, the the good I know I ought to do, I, I don't do. And the bad I know I shouldn't do, I do. Who can save me from this life of sin? Right? Am I the only one in this room that reads that and just is like, that is my life? Like Paul is wrestling with knowing the good that he ought to do, even in the flesh, living it out, beating himself into submission like Martin Luther would generations later. Trying to be obedient to God so much so that in the flesh he could actually say blameless and yet knowing full well that even though he had kept all the rules, when he stands before God his maker, he is still the chief of sinners. There's this strange juxtaposition that's going on between the flesh and the spirit. And so in the flesh, in the natural, Paul could stand and say, "I've, I've kept the rules. But when he stands before a holy holy God, he would have to admit, by works of the law can no man be justified. I still need an alien righteousness. I still need a righteousness that I was not able to earn on my own. I need a righteousness that someone else purchased for me and gave to me or I cannot stand. Listen to what he says. So why why did all this happen? Here's what Paul understands. This Guys, this is beautiful. Several weeks ago, this was a part of our daily reading, and, and this just wrecked me. As, as Paul is trying to unpack uh, this, this theology for Timothy of God being sovereign, even over our sin, because that's about what's about to be told to us here, is that, Paul being the chief of sinners being a blasphemer being a persecutor being insolent opponent to the church he now says what in verse 16 but i receive mercy for this reason so all of that had a purpose all of that had a reason. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. This is God at work in Paul's life, doing what God wants to do with Paul, not Paul just making stuff up. And he says, For this reason I receive mercy, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who, who were to believe in him for eternal life. So Paul acknowledges that everything that happened from the the persecuting that he did of the church to him being saved by Christ, it was all for a reason. It was all under the care and watchful eye of God. God did it for a reason so that he might use Paul as an example Spurgeon said that he used Paul as the proof print for the printer, as old-time printers would, would put the pieces into the press, as the plate that would be pressed into the paper, that Paul was that one who was pressed. And now, as each new believer comes, we're pressed into that same place to look at what God did with Paul and know that if God saved Paul, there's hope for me. There's hope for me. And then I love, because I, I, we're not going away from this. So Paul unpacks this beautiful truth to Timothy. He hands it off to his, his protege, his disciple, this uh, Timothy who would, by the way, be the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And as he's unpacking this theological truth, he breaks out into doxology. That's what verse 17 is. That's Paul just like, without being able to help himself and, and just imagine him like writing this. And I just imagine tears coming out of his eyes and staining the paper as he says, man, me, I am a chief of sinners, but this was all according to God's plan that he might make me an example for you, Timothy, for all the people in your church, for those who are around, because if God can save me, he can save anyone. And then he bursts out into song, into ex- in just exaltation of God. In verse 17, what does he say? To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And then he's like back into the letter, right? Like I love that. I love that. I love that more, I wish that more of our theological books were like that, right? As these like super smart people are like unpacking these theological truths that we would be able to see how that affects their hearts and just causes them to to just overflow with thankfulness and praise and worship to God. Um, I had a young brother uh, recently, uh, was, was preparing uh, a, a sermon, a message, a study for some friends, and, and he wrote me and he said, hey, do you ever, do you ever just like break down when you're, when you're preparing for a message? And I said, all the time. Because we cannot come to these truths of Scripture and not be moved by them. And if we're not, then we need to check our hearts, church, like, if we, if we come to this and we read this this morning, we hear Paul going to the king of the ages, immortal, and we're just like, yeah, whatever. Like, we need to check our hearts. We need to check our hearts. And this is what is true, that God, if he has, has saved you for the very same reason, so that you might be an example to others in your life, that if God saved you, he can save them too. We're going to talk about what that salvation really looks like in the coming weeks as we get into Ephesians chapter 1. But here's Paul, and this is what he says. Yeah, in the natural, guys, in the flesh, I've, I've done it all. I've kept the rules. But hear him in First Timothy saying, it's not enough. It's not enough. I hope you heard what we said over Allison this morning, that the, light, the point of the Christian life is not the life of the Christian. Like if being a Christian, if, if it all boils down to keeping rules for us, we have missed it, church. We have missed it. The point of the Christian life is not the life of the Christian. It's the life of... And the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ for us and in our place, that's what our life is supposed to be about. That's what the point of our life is supposed to be about. Not us. Not us going over, hey, look at me, guys. I kept all the rules. No, hear Paul saying, it's not enough. It's not enough to keep the rules. No, you can keep all the rules and hear him say, by works of the law shall no man be justified. Nobody's going to heaven, rolling up into the gates, going, here I am, God. I did it. Where's my house? I want my mansion. None of us roll into heaven with a swagger. We all limp with the limp of Jacob, saying that if God had not had mercy on me, I would be No more. So hear Paul saying that this morning. Why Paul? Because no one can beat Paul on either side of the coin. And and this is just the reality, guys. We're in the Bible belt this morning. I mean, it doesn't, we are the, Texas is the buckle of the Bible belt, right? And what that means is there are some of you here in this place, you don't remember not serving, loving, and obeying Christ. And hear me? That's wonderful, but this is the danger of that, and I'm I'm with you this morning. The danger of that, if the gospel is not being faithfully proclaimed over us and we are not faithfully listening and submitting to it, the danger of that is that we would walk with a swagger would say, man, I'm the fastest at the Sunday school sword drill. I get to that scripture faster than anybody. I can quote every book of the Bible. I can name off the Ten Commandments. I know all 12 disciples. Like, I know the words, the songs. Like, you know what? No one's getting to heaven because of that stuff. And hear me, I pray that that is my children's testimony, right? <laughs> like, like, that is, that is my prayer, that that would be my kid's testimony. My kids do not need a dramatic testimony. You know what my kid's testimony needs to be? I was in church from the day I was born until the day I died. I loved Jesus with all my heart, and I don't remember anything else. Praise God for that testimony. And if that's your testimony, praise God for that testimony. Don't think that you need some other testimony, but know, know this about yourself, that there is a slippery slide to that where you begin to rely on your flesh, your natural. That's Paul saying, hey, I've worked the law. I'm, I'm blameless, right? Like, I don't remember. I'm not a bad person. Like, But remember, and, and just grab this for a second, only bad people get into heaven. You know that, right? <laughs> Jesus came for the sick, not the well. W- what did Paul even say right here? Th- this, this saying is trustworthy, which means Paul is expecting that you and I would have these words coming out of our mouths from time to time. That in our conversations with each other, that we would remind each other of this truth, we'd say, "Hey, hey, remember, remember, the saying's trustworthy. And what is it? Deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save who? Sinners. Of whom I am the foremost. Now Paul is identifying himself and saying, no, 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 no. you think you're the foremost? No, 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 I'm the foremost. right? You want to brag about something? Like let's brag about how much grace God had to pour on me rather than you. Right? Like Paul's bragging on that. And, and he's saying we should do the same. Like none of us should sit here and go, yeah, well, you know, I really kind of had it going on and Jesus just kind of recognized it and was like, yeah, you are awesome. I can't believe I didn't see it before. You are. Let me worship you. And no, that's, that's not how God works. Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners of whom I am a foremost, of whom you are foremost, of whom Paul is a foremost. These things should be coming out of our mouths. You see, no one could beat Paul in keeping the law. So if you've been here and you've been in church your whole life and you think you've got it going on, you still didn't beat Paul. And on the flip side of the coin, if you're coming from this place and you are coming from the depths of depravity, praise God. Like, praise God. And I don't care where you were last night, you're here this morning. You're sitting under the preaching, the teaching of the word of God, and it's not by accident. And Paul's life wasn't by accident. He said this was all so that God could show his mercy and say, there's no one that's outside of God's reach. No one. Because if Paul was, if there is anyone who could be, it was Paul. And so let's see why. Let's go to Acts chapter 7, verse 54. We're going to get just a quick snapshot of who Paul was in the natural. Acts 7 verse 54, last week we, we mentioned how that Stephen was the first martyr. He was killed for his faith, but notice who was standing by. Now, I have to unpack this for you. It's going to say Saul, okay? It is Paul, the same Paul in Ephesians chapter 1. Saul is his Hebrew name. Paul is his Greek name or Roman name, okay? And and this is basically like someone saying, hey, my name is Michael and Miguel. Okay? So Saul Paul is like Michael Miguel. It's just one's in Hebrew and one's Roman. Alright? Uh, and so that's all it is. So here here let's see Paul as Saul going by his Hebrew name. He's in Uh, In Jerusalem, chapter 7 of Acts, verse 54. Now when the religious leaders heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at Stephen. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God of Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at Stephen. They cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, which is our Paul. And as they were stoning Stephen, Stephen called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So here's the first martyr of the church, Stephen. And who's standing there while the people, like, so, so just so you get a picture of this, it's like, you ever, you ever like play uh, baseball or something or throw the ball around with your kids? Um You got to like take the jacket off or the sweatshirt or you get in a game, right? Like um, I went to uh, Top Golf with uh, Brian and Daniel several months ago and we were just kind of messing around. But then some of us started to actually hit some good balls and it was like all of a sudden it was like, okay, the jackets are coming off, right? And as soon as that does, someone always has to say like, oh, they're getting serious now. They're getting serious, right? These guys are getting serious. They're literally taking off their outer garment, hear this so that they can throw the rock harder at Stephen. It's like, oh, oh yeah? Like they're going at it. And they're laying their garments at Saul's feet, which is more like Saul being the one who's like, hey guys, we're doing this. Let's go, who's in? Lay the coats down, we're taking him out. Saul's the guy. And Saul, it says here in chapter 8, verse 1, And Saul approved of his execution. Saul was filled with this bloodlust for the blood of the Christians in the early church because he saw them as, remember, religious, zealot, Jewish man. He saw the church of Jesus as a blight on the earth and against his religion before God. And Saul approved of Stephen's execution, verse uh, number 1. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentations over him, Verse 3, but Saul was ravaging the church and entered house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So he's going off anywhere he can find a Christian, men, women, children, dragging them, kicking, screaming, throwing them into prison, cordoning them off. This is like uh, crystal knocked stuff going on. This is Jews in uh, being persecuted by the Nazis in Germany, if you can wrap your mind around that, this is the type of persecution that's beginning to happen in Jerusalem. Now I want you to grab this real quick, what it said in verse number 2. What did it say happened as a result of that persecution? It says the Christians were scattered, right? Now that could seem like, gosh, man, it was so bad they had to go. Hear the providence of God in the persecution of his own church. Jesus said to his disciples, and you will go where? First to Jerusalem, then through all Judea, then to Samaria, then to the othermost parts of the earth. But what's happening by chapter 8 of Acts? They're still hanging out in Jerusalem. So God brings persecution? I mean, hear me, guys. This, this God was not going, oh no, Saul. I didn't know Saul was going to be there. Oh, Jesus like going back to the father. Dad, I, don't, I just, you know, I thought I had it figured out. We've got to go back to the drawing board. This Saul guy has really screwed things up. No, God is at work in all this. God is at work in Saul persecuting the church. God is at work in the death of believers. Church, if you don't believe that God's at work in the death of believers, you need to go and read your Bible again. You need to go read 1 Corinthians 15 again. It's appointed once for a man to be born, another for him to die. God is God over both bookends of our life. He is. And God's at work in this and the church is being persecuted and God in His providence uses it to scatter His church into all the places that He told them He wanted them to go. And as they went, what went with them? The gospel. And as the gospel went with each disciple, what have we talked about the last couple of weeks? In the individual, the potential of the whole dwells, right? And as the gospel went with each disciple, as they were scattered out, what happened? The gospel formed a family that began to live on mission, which is what? It's the church, and the church of Jesus began to spread throughout the world. That's what I love about Jesus' church. Bring on the persecution. I mean, I, I say that a little bit lightly. I don't mean that like, hear me, I don't like pain. Okay? I don't. I don't want pain. But at the end of the day, I know that persecution purifies the church of Jesus Christ. And it doesn't, it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't stop it. Nothing can stop the gospel. Nothing can stop the church of Jesus. Not even Saul. Praise God. Amen. So then we get this picture of Saul just dragging people off to prison. And then we skip over to chapter 9, and we get Saul's conversion. I want you to see the first few verses of chapter 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Now, I want you to understand this. Saul is a guy so filled with bloodlust, that he's literally breathing threats of murder murder everywhere that he goes. He, He is not going to stop until he has been responsible for eliminating Christianity from the planet. It's how zealous he is. He was a serial killer with government papers to do it, literally. He's running around, killing people, throwing them in prison, but at the behest of his leaders. And so he went to the high priest. He asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, which is the church, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem where they also would be put in prison and later executed. Now listen to this. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting, what's the word? Me. Notice how closely Jesus identifies with his church. This is Jesus talking, by the way. Sorry, spoiler alert. Why are you persecuting me? So let's get there. Saul said, who are you, Lord? And he says, Lord, why? Because a voice just knocked him off his horse. He is in a place of submission, and it wasn't willingly. He says, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. This is how closely Jesus identifies with his church. Remember what we said. Luke, life and ministry of Jesus in his physical body. Acts, life and ministry of Jesus in his spiritual body, which is the church. And here's Jesus saying, why are you persecuting me? Because if you persecute the church of Jesus, you are persecuting Jesus. And there will be a price to pay apart from repentance. So he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now notice, he doesn't say, Jesus doesn't say, and now I want you to decide to follow me. I'm giving you a choice. This is your ultimatum. Choose now or forever hold your breath. What does he say? No, he just starts giving him directives. But... Saul has already said, Lord, right? Who are you, Lord? He's in a place of submission, and Jesus just begins to start giving him directives. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one, implying that Saul did. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he then saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without his sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, which is still there today. It's one of the longest occupied cities in the history of the world. You can go and check it out. I'd love to go there someday. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, uh, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Amen? He's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed, entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul... And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus, proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, and if you take all of Acts and the epistles and put this together, this is about a year and a half to three years later, depending on how you do the timeline. He attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, not the same ones from chapter 6. They were just Greek-speaking Jews, not Greek-speaking Jewish believers. But they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Praise God. So that's Paul. Here's this guy, a Pharisee, kept all the rules and yet knows that because of his persecution of the church of Jesus, breathing threats of murder and then actually walking those things out, a chief of sinners, a murderer, literally a murderer, whom God, in his mercy, by his grace, through the faith and love that is in Christ Jesus, saved him. So we know that Paul becomes this great man in the church of Jesus. And I want to go back to Philippians chapter 3. I told you we'd circle back around to that passage. We hear Paul say, in the flesh, in the natural, keeping righteousness by the law, blameless. But he goes on. In verse 7, he says this But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He's saying, whatever, whatever righteousness I could have claimed as my own by keeping the rules, I count it as loss, as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them all as rubbish. Scubala, go look it up. You'll have fun. As rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Listen to this. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God, from God, that depends on faith. Listen to what he says. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead." Man, that's a guy I want driving the bus. And how awesome is it going to be to have Paul walk us through all those things we talked about in the book of Ephesians. But what does he point to? He points to a righteousness through faith, an alien righteousness, a righteousness in Christ. He says to know Him trumps everything else. To know Christ and to experience his resurrection. That's who Paul was. The question is then, who are we? And that's why we want to go through the book of Ephesians. Because if there is a question that the book of Ephesians answers for us, it is who we are in Christ. That's why we sang in Christ alone this morning, and we probably will be singing that song a lot as we go through the book of Ephesians but the answer to the question, who are we, really rests in whether or not we are Christ's. The first question of the catechism in New City is, what hope do we have in this life or the next? And the answer is that I am not my own, but belong to God and to my Savior Jesus Christ. If you cannot answer the question that who you are is in Christ then the answer to the question, who you are, is lost and in need of a Savior. Today, hear the word of the Lord, which does not return void, which is living and active, and hear the word of God say. The saying is trustworthy. It's worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am and the foremost. And if you can raise your hand with that this morning and say, you know what, I may not understand everything else, but I do know that I'm a sinner. And if I'm a sinner, I need someone who can save sinners. Hear the word of the Lord say this morning, Christ Jesus came to save sinners. And if that's you, with Paul and with me, and with everyone else in this building this morning, you are in good company. It's not about doing everything right. It's about believing in the one who did. His name is Jesus. He is Lord. The question is, will you you be his, and will he be your Lord this morning? You need mercy that overflows in the faith and the love that comes from Christ. My prayer is that that would happen for you even this morning. Amen.